there's this kind of prevalent thought that like the opposite of racism is love. Love wins. And it's like, no, right. no. The opposite of racism is you fucking thinking about what's happening and unpacking it so you don't have a knee-jerk reaction every time someone brings it to you that shuts down and asks them to take any other avenue to get to their own truth. Do you like books? I'm outlining a new writing project. Who wrote this book? Read it. Are you read it? Sometimes I'd write something. What are you writing? Have you written anything lately? I'm Amanda Stern, and this is Bookable. On today's show, working through the big problems. Conditions for migrant white nationalist. The deadly attack in Charlotte. Anti Semitic attacks. hate crimes. Anti immigrant manifesto. There's a lot going on in the world. And folks are trying to figure it out, which can get uncomfortable. What are we trapped inside that Harry Nilsson song? Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear words they're saying. Well, our guest today is cutting through the noise to get personal. Tell him who you are. My name is Mira Jacob, and I'm the author of Good Talk. Mira Jacob. Good Talk is a truly unique and funny look at the way we navigate those uncomfortable topics with the important people in our lives. And how those efforts, no matter how valiant, can sometimes hit a dead end. And so you think you're going to have these conversations that clear everything up, but then actually you leave and you're like, oh, that good talk. That was great. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> really glad we had that one. Those kinds of conversations can be especially uncomfortable with kids. Take Mira Sunzi. She had no idea the conversation she was getting into when she bought Z a record player and a bunch of albums. Lo and behold, if you leave a six-year-old kid who's a mixed-race kid in a, in a room alone with a bunch of Michael Jackson albums from, like, the Jackson 5 era to his last ones. He comes out with a lot of questions. What happened to his other glove? Is that how people really walk on the moon? Is Michael Jackson brown or is he white? And I was like, yeah, well, you know, he's black, but he sort of turned white. And he was like, he turned white? And I said, yeah, and he goes are you going to turn white? And I was like, no. And he goes, am I? And I was like, no, not you. And he goes, is daddy? And I was like, daddy's already white. And he goes, but was he always? And so I, I drew us on printer paper and then I ran to his room and I got out all the albums. And then I put them across my dining table and then I drew our conversation on bubbles and I cut them out and I put them on top of the albums. And then I stood on the dining room table and took pictures of the albums. In the moment I was doing that, I realized there were so many conversations that were occurring to me. And I was like, and I would put this on that. And I would do I would do this on that background. And as I was doing it, I just got really excited about the friction of the black and white figure, right? And I only ever draw us in black and white because America mm -hmm. only talks about race in black and white. And so to having that contrast with the color of the backgrounds and having the characters stay in basically the same position so that you know it's the same person, but everything has changed just by the environment, right? That was really fun, and it felt, it felt psychologically right. Like, yep, that's the right thing to do. So when you're looking at it, you're looking at what basically looks like paper dolls popping off of color photographs, having a conversation, so it's really easy to read. Good talk is effective at not only portraying these talks, but giving them context. Take, for example, a particularly hard conversation she had with her son, Z, in a very public place. 
one time when we were on the subway, he said in like this really sweet chirp, he's like, are white people afraid of brown people? Everybody on the subway sort of stopped and stared at us. And I had this moment where I was like, what do I say that's not a lie to my son? And I was like, wait, you just have to talk to your son. Like, who cares about these people? So I said, sometimes. And he said, what do you mean? Like, how do you know which ones are afraid of you? And I said, well, you don't always. You know, it's like we kept walking into these conversations where I was trying to do the thoughtful, sort of honest, how do you have this conversation without lying to your kid about what's happening? Because because I don't want to I don't want to lie to him, mm-hmm. but I don't want to make him scared. And um, and somehow even just telling him the most basic truth was pretty horrific. Yeah, I mean, that is, it's so intense. And then the, one of the questions that he asks you is so painful because it has to do with your husband and yeah. his father. And what what was that question? Yeah, so the last question, like the one that actually tipped me into writing the book was he said, is daddy afraid of us? And I immediately was like, no. And he just sort of looked at me. And I felt like I could see his brain just like quivering in there. And I was like, no, my husband's name is Jed. And, you know, we were lying in bed and I said, listen, so, you know, he asked if you were afraid of him. So then I said, no. And he said, and he said, wait, what? And I said, what? And he goes, wait, my son asked if I was afraid of him. It was so sad because I just realized like, oh, you didn't even know this conversation was coming. Right. Like, I knew it was coming, but I thought it would be later. I thought it would be when he was 12 or 13, and I thought it would come out in a more complicated question, something that hinted at, like, how does dad's color make him different from us, and, like, what things do we experience that he does? I thought it would come out in a more complicated way when he was older. Mm-hmm. Jed didn't even know it was going to come up. From Good Talk, page 250. Right from the start, I loved Jed's family. My in-laws were warm and welcoming and mostly on the right side of Nutty. Sometimes, though, things could get complicated. So you started the book when Z started asking you these questions about skin color, but then you had to sort of shift focus when you learned. Did you learn that your in-laws were going to vote for Trump or did you, was that something yeah. you already? No, I didn't know. No, How I had did no you idea. learn that? that was not a great day. Um, So my in-laws were always Republican, and that's, you know, I mean, I grew up in New Mexico. I grew up with plenty of Republicans. Um, And when this started happening, Judd and I had a few talks where I said, are they, would they? And he said, no, I just, I don't, you know, Mira, they're libertarian. It's not that. They, They know his mother went to school with Donald Trump and thought he was an idiot when she went to school with him. So it was like, they know he's not a great guy. That's not going to be a thing. And then it changed. Holy cow. You know, we understood that they were watching a lot of Fox News. Mm-hmm. And so we were kind of under the impression that if we interrupt that and we say, hey, look, yes, that's your TV source, but also look at all of these other sources. And specifically, I don't know if you remember but this, but the Times put up a video reel of all the different brown and black people getting hurt and thrown out of Trump rallies. And it was really terrifying because it was like, this is the stuff we're not showing on TV because nobody, like it's too violent in a way for TV. 
mm-hmm. which is crazy to think about now. We don't want to show this on TV, but this is what is actually happening at those rallies along with everything else. And when I saw it, I was like, this will, this will actually clear it up. This will stop. Like, this will make whatever this feeling is that we have really clear. Judd was like, I'm sending it to them. This is the th- I mean, this will change it. And he sent it to them. And their response was, I mean, they just got so furious with him. And they said, never show us anything like this again. How disrespectful of you. Um, you know, you think that we're out of touch. I mean, they just, they really took it offensively. And, and that's when I realized, I was like, oh, the thing I thought was always going to be the bridge between us is, in fact, just a pit of lava. Shit. I guess it just made me realize that um, that all this time when I thought that we had a kind of, you know, we were really different people, but I thought we had a sort of shared language and a shared love, and definitely we... You know, just this kind of understanding underneath it all, I suddenly realized, I was like, oh, we don't, we don't have that. I have been telling myself for years that we had that. From Good Talk, page 286. Someone, Kiese Lehman, I think, said, Most white people are sleepwalking when it comes to racism in America. They don't see it, so they think it doesn't exist anymore. Forcing them to see that it's happening here now is like waking up a sleepwalker. They get disoriented, angry at you instead of about the racism itself. To be frank, like, I'm I'm talking about my in-laws here, but honestly, I had that feeling with so many of my white friends as well. And so I'm talking about it as though it's this isolated thing that has to do with Trump. But to be honest, that's like the least panicking thing in a way because you can see it and it's terrifying and it affects your life. But it's like it's like you can look at it and just say on the face like that is wrong. What's scarier for me is the many multiples of friends that I have where I was trying to tell them how scared I was getting and how weird it was and how violent this was. And all they wanted to do was, like, haggle over the word racist. Like, you know, we're going to turn off a large portion of the country if we use the word racist. Let's not do that. And it was like, what is happening where you can quibble over a word and our lives are on the line? What is going on? Why can't you interrupt that? That was scarier to me. Uh, Why do you think... Why do you think that is? Why do you think that they couldn't have that actual conversation? I think the basic way that has broken down for many, many, many um, decades now is I think white Americans associate, they think a, a racist person is a bad person, therefore I am a good person, therefore I cannot be racist. It's this, it's this equation, the self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So if you have, if you feel generally good about yourself, you could not possibly be racist, never actually looking at that and saying, what all, what, how many feelings am I discounting on the way to solidifying my own goodness? How many lives am I not taking into account so that I can make sure that my own goodness is front and center? And that's where we start every conversation from, is from the basis that my goodness is unquestionable. Mm -hmm. And that's a really hard place to have a conversation when you're trying to talk about how invisibilized people like me and my friends become in that place because you're trying to talk about the shit show that your life is becoming 
And the only thing they want to talk about is their ego. And so then you're in a position where your very existence is erased and annihilated. Right. Or it's an affront to their ego. Right. Which is a lot of what happened. Like, I lost a lot of white friends over the last few years, and it was brutal. Well, I wondered whether, when you were writing it, if you felt any resentment, like you were maybe, for all the white people who are going to read it, that you were doing the work for them. Well, I'll tell you that I didn't really write the book for white people. Mm-hmm. So that's how I got out of feeling resentful. Okay. Because as much as white people read this book as a critique of whiteness and as an addressing of Trump, there are so many brown and black people that are saying, this is my story, mm-hmm. and this is the first time I've seen it. And what whiteness thinks about it doesn't really matter to them because they're seeing themselves for the first time. Like, they're... Li- I get a lot of really, because it's a funny book, right? Like, for all, all the seriousness that we're talking about, it's actually pretty funny. So I get a lot of letters from people that are hilarious about things in their life that went this way or that way or what it made it think of. But most of the letters that I get are from people that say, I've never seen my life written about before. Mm. And you're writing about it. And this is my story, too. for a short break. When we come back, more of Mira's story, growing up with racism in the U.S. and India. Stick around. Welcome back to Bookable. I'm Amanda Stern, here with Mira Jacob, author of Good Talk. So my parents um, immigrated to the States in the late 60s. And um, and they were part of a generation of Indians that were kind of wooed here by the government. Um, they came as, you know, doctors and engineers. And the government really made it easy for them to assimilate. So mm-hmm. their basic thought was America's great. It's a country where you come and, and everybody accepts you. And I know that my parents had some pretty weird stuff happen, but my mother always says that my father just never wanted to see the racism in it. Like, he was just like, oh, that's just so-and-so being such-and-such. But he would never kind of look at it. He grew up in a small town, and she grew up in Bombay and was sort of like, that's racist. Like, she would just sort of know in her head what was happening. But neither of them, when I was growing up, ever used that word with me And they never seemed to feel that that's what was happening to us, which was really confusing when things were happening to me, and I didn't know how to explain them. You know, like when I went through puberty, the the amount of men that would approach me, and I I mean, I think every girl that goes through puberty goes through this, but the ones that approach me always, it was always for some like crazy exotic encounter and they just wouldn't even look at me like I was a human. They looked mm. at me like a like a wild animal that they needed to like penetrate. It was a crazy and you know that feeling of being in front of someone and desired by someone and being completely dehumanized by them is <laughs> it's racism. But my mother would never have described it as that, you know. My mother I mean in the few times that I sort of told her she was like, you know, just stay away from those men. It was like, yeah. I mean, yeah, ma. <laughs> and that was the best she could do? That was the best she could do. Oh, ma. I know. I know. And it's funny, too, because my mother was kind of outrageously beautiful, and I would see them do it to her, too. 
and, you know, like men following us around the grocery store. We, she was the only person that looked like her in New Mexico. There were, oh, I should mention, there were three other Indian families when we moved into the state. So, like, really, she was one of the only people that looked like her. And the, and the voraciousness with which men would follow her was crazy. Wow. But, and it was also this sort of, you know, it was New Mexico, so it was kind of this hippie, like, I really... I feel you, and I think you feel me. And she's like, I do not feel you, no. (laughs) (laughs) From Good Talk, page 38. Toward the end of the visit, my grandmother gave me a bottle of Fair and Lovely. I knew what it was. I'd seen the advertisement on train station walls. It showed a woman's face getting lighter and happier and lighter and happier. For the rest of the trip, every time I looked at myself, I would imagine the lighter, happier, prettier me. We would go back every few years. And the first time that I really remember going back, and I write about this in the book, I was five and my aunties, I heard my aunties talking. And they were saying, you know, it's so sad about the little one. You know, the father is fair, the mother is fair, and even the boy is fair, but what happened to the little one? And so I heard that and I was like, what are they talking about? Because I immediately went to like the playground and games and I walked into the bedroom and I was like, mom, I don't cheat. And she was like, okay. And I was like, but like they say I'm not fair and I definitely don't cheat. And she was like, oh, no, that's nothing. Never mind. Like, don't, don't worry about that. And, and, you know, she was just sort of like shut it down. Mm -hmm. And then I went to my brother and he was the one that told me, he's like, fair means light skinned. Doofus. (laughs) Doofus. <laughs> and I and I sort of looked at him and I was like, wait, you're light-skinned? And he put his arm next to mine and it was wild because it had never even occurred to me. And it, I watched it. Like, it looked like his arm turned lighter as I looked at it. Mm-hmm. So, like, what is this? And then I did it with my mom's. I was definitely darker than her. And then that night I was trying to do it with my dad. And he's like, what are you doing? And I said, no. And I said, you're lighter than me too? And he said, don't worry about that. You know, you're you're a pretty girl. You know, you're smart enough when you're little. You're like, wait, don't worry about that. You're a pretty. Oh, dark means ugly. And then from then on, you know, my grandmother tried to give my mother skin lightening cream for me. And every time I went back, I mean, honestly, somebody would try to run after me trying to put bleach on my face. Um, And still, when I land, it's always a moment. There's always a really funny moment where... Like when I was young, I would go into the bathroom right before we land, we would land, and I would stare into the mirror and I would like press my face and like look at my face. And I'd be like, these are what the bones of your face look like, and this is what it is. And and maybe it changes with the gravity in India or something. Something happens. I don't know what it is, something happens. And then I would go out, and sure enough, it was like I had a tremendous physical deformity mm-hmm. that I was overcoming. So when I would talk to people in the normal, sort of straightforward probably very American way that I would talk to anyone, they would just look at me. And as I got older, men would say things like, but you're so confident. And it was like, you know, despite despite what happened to you, you're so confident. Like that was the part that they were leaving out. I was like, wow, it really is. This is, this is real for you all. And so I know exactly the way that I feel when I go back to India. And I know exactly the way that it deforms my personality to be perceived as less intelligent, less together, less deserving of somebody's attention or time. Mm -hmm. Like I know the way that it sort of forks and twists in me. And it's always such a relief to come back here 
where I kind of understand what's coming at me more. Hmm. It's interesting that you didn't actually internalize it to the point where you brought it back with you. I think definitely my aunts would have preferred if I did because I would have stayed out of the sun more. But I just really like my skin when it's dark. And it's a funny thing because you know how you see ads sometimes where you see a woman with a normal-sized body, which is not ever what magazines show, and she's like, I like my body. And and if you're a person that's grown up with you know wanting to be thin your whole life, you're like, I want to feel as you do. You know, like, I want to feel as confident in my body as you feel in yours. I actually think I might be that person for dark skin. Like, I genuinely like my dark skin. Mm -hmm. I'm psyched about it. I feel like it looks good. Mm -hmm. I look good in colors. Yep. You know, I don't age very much. And I can tell when I go to India that there are, like, women who are starting to embrace this now who want to feel this and are doing the tremendous amount of work to unpack this. And I wish I could just give it to them. Mm -hmm. I wish I could just, like give them this feeling, too. Your skin's great. It's just the color you are. Mira Jacob, author of Good Talk. It's published by One World and is available now. Bookable is a production of Loud Tree Media. I'm your host, Amanda Stern, five feet tall, and let's not talk about it. We're produced by me, Bo Friedlander, and Andrew Dunn, who also mixed and sound designed the show. Bo Friedlander is Loud Tree's co-founder and editor-in-chief. Find us on the web at bookablepod.com, and please subscribe and rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. That is one of the best ways for other readers to find out about Bookable. And if you ask Mira, Good Talk makes for a useful gift. I think it's a really good book to give to that person that you can't talk to anymore in your life. It's like, you know what? I don't know what to do. I'm just going to hand it to you. Mm-hmm. And I've actually gotten letters from people that have done that. And that has been really amazing. Some of them are like, didn't really go as well as I wanted it to. But it did give us a place to start, which I think is, you know, I mean, anything that gets us talking to each other. Yeah. Good talk. Good talk. This is bookable.